Hey everybody, welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This is Robbie Wagner and Charles William Carpenter III, as always. And today we are looking at a whiskey from Hudson Whiskey. It's in New York. It is uh, specifically distilled and finished by Tuthill Town Spirits in Gardner, New York. And bottled by someone else. So I don't know the story there. <laughs> but uh, but it's, um, I think you said the mash bill was 95% rye. And what was the other five? Uh, malted barley. So yeah, this is a rye whiskey from Hudson Whiskey. Um, interesting side note there, how others are putting it together for them. But uh, <laughs> yeah. it looks like it's aged three years. 92 proof. And it's finished in maple syrup barrels. So I have no idea what to expect there, but let's pour some and see how it goes. Oh, my ice has become a giant block. Insert pouring sound effect. Oh, nice. That's a good one. Wow. Did you hear it? Uh, I did. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'm again using the Norlin uh, whiskey glass. So I get the appropriate effect. Apparently Robbie was not impressed by those. They were fine. Um, I would probably do everything in both the, the way I normally do it with some ice and also do it in the Norland, but my Norland glass is dirty from last time and I haven't cleaned it yet. So uh, we're going with just the ice right now. So for those who are curious, he doesn't do dishes for at least three days. So, yeah, I think um, this I don't know. It doesn't taste a lot like maple syrup to me. It does have the smell though. I get a lot of that in the, in the smell. It it has a bunch of sweetness there. Yeah. I mean, it it definitely has sweetness. It has way less spiciness than I would have thought for 95% rye. Well, yeah, I think the finishing in maple barrels probably takes a lot of that edge off. It's an interesting mix for it to have malted barley as well, which, you know, malted grains go into scotches, Things like that, like you get your single malts, multiple malts, yada, yada, yada. So it's got like 5% scotchiness, I guess. And maybe that's, you know, rounding it off in a different way. For me, um, the downside is I get a lot of like, like a mildewy, corky kind of flavor. So there's the sweet and the smell. And then in my finish, I'm getting some like kind of mildewy, like, almost like a cork rot. I don't think my whiskey is bad per se, cause I don't smell that, but my flavor I'm getting that. Um, I get a little of that, I guess, but you know, now that you mentioned the, the scotchiness, I think I do get a little bit of that too. Kind of, I always say that scotches taste a little bit like a Sharpie. Mm. Um, I don't know what it is, but it's like a specific alcohol, I guess that's similar to what they use in Sharpies. And it's like, uh, I'm getting a little of that, like on the finish, but the, the initial smell and taste is all kind of just basically normal whiskey with a little bit of honey. It's like all I would say, like, it's not very complex. There's a little bit of that, um, the spiciness in the middle there. And then, yeah, the finish is all over the place with, I don't think I would say mildewy, but it's, it's got some weird flavors at the end. Yeah. Like maybe if you, you know, sort of like 
suck on the the cork itself or something in a bottle. You know, you get like kind of like old cork. You ever had like a bad wine that has like that cork rod or yeah. It, yeah. it, it just kind of reminds me of that. Um, yeah. There's some strange things going on there that, that don't work well for me. Uh, I haven't eaten any Sharpies that I'm aware of, so I don't have a <laughs> point of reference on that, but the smell, not the taste. <laughs> So yeah, I, um, I, I think it's interesting, the descripting, the descriptors that people use for alcohols, I mean, more commonly around, around wines, but also sometimes in other spirits, uh, whiskeys and whatnot. And, uh, the funniest one I ever heard just as a quick side note was in this documentary, uh, about wine called Sam. And this group of guys studying to be master sommeliers and, you know, they're trying to taste different wines and quickly go through all these tasting notes. And the one guy is like, uh, smells like, um, a fresh opened, uh, can of tennis balls. And I'm like, how, how do you relate that to, you know, to something you're going to drink? Wouldn't have thought of that while I was tasting something. Yeah. So I usually try to choose at least like edible or consumable items as a point of reference. <laughs> yeah. So overall I would give this, I'd say four tentacles, pretty middle of the road. Um, not terrible. There are, is that weirdness on the finish, but nothing too I special might, here for me. I'm, I might go three tentacles. And my basis there is that if, if it didn't smell good, it has a pleasant, sweet smell to it. I would almost think it was a little bit rotten or there was a problem there, but because like the smell is fine and, and, and like you said, it is more on the finish. So it's like, mm, has a, a mellow start and then kind of goes into that. So I guess it's not an issue with the whiskey itself, but it's just not, not a flavor mix for me. Like high rye, some of this malted barley, and then finished in maple bar- maple barrels, like I think it's just not a good mix for me. My preference. Yeah, and it does sound kind of like a weird mashup. Like usually you would want the the rye to be more spicy and and balanced out, and not sweet maple syrup, at least in my opinion. So yeah, it's it's kind of weird, but don't hate it. We'll probably drink the rest of it, but you know, don't know if I, I'd buy it again. Planning to gift mine, so I'll be gifting. <laughs> That. Not not to my belly this time. So someone gets a uh, slightly drank whiskey. Yeah, it'll be a family member. Don't worry. This isn't like don't don't message message us asking to uh, package it out. Uh, maybe in the future, but for now, it'll be a family member. Yeah. Um, so let's let's get so, to the meat of it, though. You know, let's get to the meat yeah. of of our discussion here. The the web portion, the controversial yeah. portion. Yeah. You know, every, everybody tunes in for this part. We know that. Yeah. No one cares about whiskey or our lives. They just want to hear our, our technical know-how. Exactly. <laughs> Let us tell you um, about selecting a framework for your next web application. Yeah. So, I mean, those of you that, that have followed us for a while at ShipShape, you probably know that We've been using Ember for ever. Um, you know, I personally picked up Ember about 2012. I don't even know what version it was then. Maybe pre one, I think. Um, a lot's changed since then. You know, it's gotten a lot better. A lot of other frameworks have come out. 
you know, React came out 2013, 14, something like that. Do you remember, Chuck? Um, 2014 sounds about right. I can recall being introduced uh, to it uh, from a colleague. Uh, we were working on uh, Backbone applications at the time and thinking like, wait, why am I putting, why am I putting like my template syntax in the same file with JavaScript? Like, didn't we work for years to get this crap out of here? <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that goes, right? Like, you know, we have been told for years not to use inline styles. And then <clears throat> Tailwind comes along and says, hey guys, do you want to use inline styles? <laughs> it's like, yes, I would love to do that. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it goes in cycles like anything, but yeah. So, so react came out and you know, everyone kind of said it was the hotness after a little bit. I don't know that it initially had as much fanfare as it does these days, but it's kind of became this snowball where everyone was like, everything that Facebook is putting out is awesome. And react is God's gift to JavaScript. And there are no other choices. Why would you ever use other frameworks? And like Ember is so old and bloated and, you know, why would you choose that? And, you know, then Vue came out at some point, I think probably a little bit after React, I guess. It, I don't know. It was definitely after React. Um, I can't really nail down when I came across. It might have been like 2017, 2018 I came across it. Um, worked on a project utilizing it already for a little bit. Um, you know, it's fine. Is a flavor of something. Was neither... Uh, disappointed or impressed overly with, you know, working in it. And yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's a fair assessment of you is like, it's kind of a mashup of Ember and react. Like it has some good things from both and some bad things from both. And, you know, it's, it's kind of middle of the road for any developer, I would say. I noticed you're skipping over uh, the elephant in the room, the Google elephant angular. Angular definitely oh. came out early days, pre-React, more like around the time when Ember was pre-V1, I believe. And yeah, I know I did some work in, in Angular 1 um, and hated all of it for some similar reasons. <laughs> really? Oh, yes. it was. I, I didn't like working in it at all. Um, yeah, I it was just very attached, like... I didn't like the, uh, what was it? Like bi-directional events attached to the. Two-way bindings. Yeah. Two-way bindings. This is the, no, I did not like that. Um, and just a bunch of other things. It just wasn't great. Like I said, I was coming from the backbone world using backbone marionette and, uh, just wasn't clean to me. My backbone was really well organized in your traditional MVC style. And, uh, Angular was just really doing its own thing. And I know a lot of that changed later on and it's made some positive strides um, in more recent iterations, taking the good things from some other frameworks and was probably the first one to really lean heavily with TypeScript as well. So, you know, having stronger types, um, some positive things there. Yeah, exactly. And which was fine, but I was actually well along my uh, management career. And so I was kind of less concerned in terms of those choices. Oh, okay. Yeah. This looks better. I don't have to do it. So you pick the tool you want. (laughs) Yeah. I know that um, 
Angular recently deprecated version one, I think, after like 10 years or something. Wow. Which is crazy that because so many people got stuck on the old paradigms and were just not able to upgrade to two, which is, I think, a, a big testament to how Ember has done things. You know, Ember doesn't like to make huge jumps like that and tries to bring everyone along and support everything forever. Like, for example, right now, you can still use classic components without angle brackets and no glimmer, no like doesn't have to be native classes. You can also use all of those things mixed in with it. Like you can have some glimmer components, some angle brackets, some not, some, you know, all of that stuff. And the fact that it all works together seems like a maintenance nightmare, but it is really good for developer experience because you can update little pieces of your app at a time and you don't have to make a huge jump from, you know, Angular puts out a new version every couple of months, it feels like. They're on like Angular 14 or something now. Mm. Um, it just keeps going up and up and up. Um, and they keep breaking stuff. Like it, they don't have any way to make a version agnostic add-on type of thing like if you release like we have angular shepherd and once you upgrade the version it just will not compile down to previous versions so there's no way to like say we support 10 to 14 you can only support 14 and that's i feel like really bad developer experience there yeah it's almost worth not having a specific um add-on at that point right like you should just we should just offer the vanilla package and some you know, maybe a little documentation around like, here are the steps to to integrate it from our experience, but, you know, maybe just start from scratch. That's it. Yeah, I know there were some previous issues before, and I've been lucky enough to also avoid that within our own open source application, so, or frameworks. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. So then talking about Angular there to Ember, I feel like is a little more apples to apples in a way. And React being like just the, the the view layer, right? Like this is just the rendering of components. It's sort of like everything that leads up to that is sort of up to you. And I think that that's probably been both its pro and con, depending on context. And, and the same thing for Ember. It's sort of like Ember's very opinionated and React is like, put together an app with me in whatever flavor you want. And people like to tinker. Um, and so I think that that probably has to do a lot with its popularity and that, you know, I can use this thing and in 15 minutes I can throw together some dynamic components and that's really cool. And now that I'm leaning into it, you know, I'm going to find greater and greater complexity over time, which is how the paradigms have shifted from versions, especially over the last couple of years, you know, going from class-based components to functional components and, utilizing different state libraries now getting into hooks to sort of have state in line as needed. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of all over the place. It's definitely the wild West has, there's been more agreements on more common patterns to do these things, but you know, it, it, you either kind of got to like buy in or not. And that's where Ember lies, but that's its strength and react will let you make a whole bunch of decisions and, you know, we're all super smart. So of course we're going to get it right or not. And then, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're rewriting your apps a bunch. It is what I like about things like Next.js though, is that it's actually made some decisions along those ways and says like, oh, you know, React and you want to write an app. Great. Come into our world. And, you know, that's where we're, uh, 
we're, we're set up for that to make good apps, good, fast apps, just follow these patterns. You don't have to invent the wheel every single day. Yeah. I think the way that I like to think about it on a, on a base level, like base Ember versus base react, right. Is kind of like Ember is like a MacBook. It's, it's a little more locked down. It won't let you do everything you want to do all the time, but it's, really consistent, really user-friendly, all that. And then React or some of these where you kind of have to do all your own build tools and everything are kind of like building your own Linux box, right? So you've got to pick all your pieces and solve all your things and make sure it all works yourself and there's zero support. And it's like, no, you can do it all however you want. And that's kind of the the downside, I feel like, because I like to be able to run one command and just start writing apps and not have to worry about build tools and and setting all that up. Yeah. And that's where I think the misnomer is too, though, because you're comparing a Linux box that was created and a MacBook and really, um, you know, you buy a MacBook, that's Ember, you get everything, you start writing apps. If you opt in to react, you have the screen and you still need a motherboard and you still need memory and you still need a hard drive and all these other things. So it's, it's really not even apples to apples. If you're going to make that comparison, it has to be glimmer like, great, I'm going to compare, you know, Glimmer JS to React. There you go. Right. Those are, those are the same thing. Yeah. And um, they're very comparable and, you know, have similar syntax if you're using the, the class-based old school React, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we can make that a discussion for another time because I know you have a lot of feelings and opinions there around um, <laughs> functional components versus class-based components. <clears throat> Yeah, I just like nice things. We'll just leave it at that. I wonder how much Eric Elliott you've read, and if you have, how angry it makes you. I don't know who that is. All right, well, I'll share later. Uh, he's written a, a whole bunch of articles and training around how like classes are bad and, and JavaScript and inheritance and like the web of inheritance is really ugly and nasty and you should just, functional mm-hmm. programming is the way to go for JavaScript. I wonder how he feels about Tailwind. I don't know. I'm guessing he's the kind of person who doesn't care that much about like CSS in any form. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's all these different competing viewpoints out there, basically, you know, based on how much work you want to do one, like setting your app up and then how much flexibility you want to have, I guess. So if you're doing a lot of, crazy stuff that needs a lot of custom coding. Uh, you may have to go outside of the, the confines of Ember a bit, but you know, maybe you're doing it wrong. If, if it takes that much extra of working around the framework to make something happen, you probably are not following the right paradigms. So it's some given some take there and it really depends on personal preference, I guess. There, I'm sure there's certainly some of that. Um, I think, there is, you know, there's also become kind of a stigma just in the, you know, the job marketplace and thinking that like, well, everybody wants this thing. So this is the thing I'm going to learn. It's more about, you know, which is really funny because at the end of the day, it's all just JavaScript. And what Mm -hmm. have I put on top of the JavaScript to help me do stuff? Yeah. Every, everybody kind of forgets that. And I think some like boot camps and people that are kind of pivoting careers and things gloss over learning those initial concepts and like 
you know, figuring out all the new ECMAScript stuff is already a ton to learn and a beast in its own right versus, you know, figuring out all the framework intricacies and whatnot. Yeah. Like the misnomer of react is a language when it's not, you know, it's, it's the tool to sort of add on and, and help you get there. But it's, uh, it's not the, the, the fundamentals of what the language is. It's like saying, I know Python because I know Django, you know, not really. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. So Um, yeah, you know, TLDR on that, we don't really know what frameworks are best for everyone. We like Ember and have been doing a lot of that and Nuxt recently um, because, well, we've also been doing some React and XJS on separate different projects and stuff, but I prefer to have everything figured out for me when I start so that I can just write code and Nuxt is kind of the view solution to that. Yeah, I think it's interesting to... There's a whole bunch of choices to be made along the way. Some people have hiring concerns or maintainability in the long term. You also just want to think about like, what is the output of what you're trying to create here? What are the problems you're trying to solve? I think that's worth asking as well. You know, say you're creating an internal dashboard for your company to, you know, review orders, incoming orders for shipment or look at uh, some metrics within like, um, for like customer metrics, things like that, or there's a lot of different things. And this is a web only application. Um, It's, you know, the choices are pretty clear in terms of what the product needs to be, you know, what would custom software around that really give you, or what would like having something productive in three months, giving you all these things. It's already solved those kinds of data issues like, like a Nuxt or an Ember, like that seems kind of clear. But maybe your needs are ultimately different or larger. Like maybe there are custom aspects of it that like it would save you time to be able to utilize some different packages and just using React as a view layer or your output is going to be a web application and uh, a native application. And there's packages or there are frameworks that can kind of do that across the board. But a lot of people are looking at like, if you can write something in React Native, and that gives you a lot more connection to the hardware and go from React Native all the way out to web to, you know, your iOS and Android devices, like, you know, the the path of delivery could kind of inform that, you know, and those things are still kind of being worked out in a bunch of ways. But like, you know, I think like, instead of being just like overly, um, you know, just digging into your favorite team that is a framework, I think you should look at like, what are the challenges we're trying to address here? What are the resources we have available to get to that? And then like make some choices uh, along the way. And, you know, oh, I've got six months to do this with an application thing. Our team knows this. We're able to deliver in three and then, you know, give you a few cycles of iteration. That seems like a pretty good win within your budget. But if you have a more some more complex needs that might be custom or, you know, will just needs a view layer and we're going to write something completely brand new, like maybe Glimmer or React in that sense is a, are, are a good choice. Um, and I would just encourage folks to like think about that every time when approaching a problem, like the tools shouldn't drive your decisions, your decisions for like the business or customer needs. And sometimes the customers are internal that should inform what you choose as your architecture. Yeah. And at the end of the day, whatever you and your team feel like you're most productive in is probably the right choice. Because if you're 
using something you all know and feel like you can ship features faster in, there's going to be workarounds for anything you may not have in the framework. Like the another Ember podcast that just came out, the Ember Report, their first episode was about wrapping Ember in a capacitor and shipping uh, native apps that way. And, you know, so that's your workaround for if you're, if Ember is your framework of choice, you can still do all the native stuff, get all the native APIs that way. Uh, if you, if your whole team knows react, you're probably not, it's probably not in your best interest to switch to Ember right then, you know, um, you should use whatever the team will like and not worry so much about like hiring or what the latest hotness is. Just use kind of what you feel your team likes and what the best tool for the job is. There we go. We'll put a pin in that one because I think that developer experience is certainly a topic we should approach at some point too, because, um, you want to, you know, reduce attrition. You want, uh, you want happiness from those working on your project, how you deliver software, how people engage, how pe- how often people get value out. All of those things is really important, not only for the future, but for like keeping the people that you have right now. Yeah, definitely. And with that, I think we should move more into the chronicles of Chuck's life, which we talked a little bit about last time, Chuck being a blackjack dealer. And, um, you know, he's traveled the world, lived in Italy, some had lots of interesting stories there, I'm sure. So as a quick, well, two quick side notes, first of all, that doesn't start with W. And so we're off brand. We're going to need to figure that out. Otherwise, what not of my life? Could happen. Uh, <laughs> second, I'm gonna I'm circling back to whiskey and pouring a different whiskey, which I will tell everyone about uh, <laughs> a different time. You dislike I, the whiskey I, so much, you're pouring. Yeah, a I one. really, you know, I what it is is I want to offer my brother a more full bottle. That's all. Okay. All righty. So yes, uh, world travels and and the land of of uh, of I. Um, so yeah, I've been to Italy uh, a few times. I uh, did live there for a few months. Um, many moons ago, I took off to Europe, visited a handful of countries around uh, some volunteer opportunities that I had, did some workaways, just kind of vagabonded around a bit just to live in smaller towns and get to know local people and do non-touristy things. So yeah, I have a special place in my heart for Italy. It is what I call the beautiful chaos because it is both of those things. It's extremely chaotic and somehow it, even the dirty parts feel to me like, yeah, but it's a, you know, a beautiful dirty. It's just a, like a way of living life to where there's just like, I embrace, I enjoy life and I can't be bothered by the little things. And, uh, I have never been able to fully embrace that, but I have high respect for it. Yeah. I mean, it's helpful that their internet is about like one megabit a second. So you can't really worry about work too much. You know, life is slower. Food is way more important than it is here. And just like, you know, enjoying yourself and having, you know, friends and family around and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And there's coffee all the time though around you. So you can be awake and get things done. <laughs> if you can connect anywhere, you know, you stop by a bar there, are the, the coffee shops are called bars and they do have a little alcohol on the, uh, you know, on the bar, but there's not a massive drinking culture there. You know, they have some drinks, but it's not like some other places, obviously the U S included where people like, I'm going to get drunk. Like, Nah, they might have a glass of wine or a cocktail or something, you know, a digestif after dinner. 
Um, but I mean, the wine is cheaper than the water. So a lot of wine, you know, easy to get a carafe of wine and have that yeah. instead of water. But yeah, that's yeah, a, kind of a, a European thing in general, like where certain alcohols are indeed cheaper than water. Like I know when, I mean, water is pretty cheap there, but if you get into like mineral waters and stuff, it gets more expensive. Um, cause I mean, I can get a liter of, of, of bubble water for like 25 cents or something. It's like really cheap. But uh, I recall leaving Germany, and this is a quick aside, and it was in the morning and we we're going to get breakfast right before, uh, you know, getting on the plane and go to the place in the airport. And of course, it's like sausages and sauerkraut or whatever, even for their breakfast, which I was you know, totally into, but my wife wasn't so much. Um, and yeah, it was like more to get bottled water with my breakfast than it was to get like a half liter of beer and just you know, just out of principle, I'm just, I'm not paying more for water than I am for this beer. And I know it's like 8.30 AM, but you know, YOLO. Yeah. It's just, there's water in both these things. Yeah. So we did with every meal in Italy, like they would ask if you want water and then you like, okay, so the water is like, okay, maybe it's not more expensive for water necessarily, but say it's like two or three Euro for water. And like a carafe of wine is like five. Just get the wine every time. Like, yeah, because they always more expensive. They always want to bring you out like the bottle of you know uh, uh, whatever mineral water. You know, if yeah. you ask for water, Fancy that's water. what you get. Yeah, you don't yeah. get like a glass of water. People don't really do that. It's always like you get a bottle of water for the table, and yeah, and it, it ends up costing just as much as like a house wine. Yep. Um, yeah. So so we had wine at every meal. <laughs> I mean, I have less experience than you do, but we were there for three weeks and. That's literally, I don't think we ordered water at any restaurant ever. So, right. Yeah. You drink water in between, you know, you grab yeah. something at, yep. yeah, you know, at the grocery, you have a few of those and, and that's when you have your water. Um, it's interesting that like every time I've been there, I pretty much eat pizza and gelato at least one meal every day mm-hmm. and lose weight. Yeah. And I lose weight. <laughs> yeah. Like, same. <laughs> yeah. Like so, we had, uh, our, our routine was we would have, the like the half carafe of wine, like the half liter with every meal. And then uh, Caitlin or I would get one of us would get pizza and one of us would get gnocchi every time. And mm. uh, we would split them, have the wine, always have gelato at least once per day. And we both lost weight the, when we were there. Like, I think it's it's twofold is there's more walking around there. And then also you're eating stuff with less like stuff that's actually food. Like in America, you got all these preservatives and crap in there that it's just not good for you. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I think that it's, you know, uh, the ingredients are better, you know, it's like all natural stuff consumed quicker. The portions are smaller. There's that. But I mean, I've had plenty of Italian meals where I felt like I was immobile because I had so much food. <laughs> um, and again, you know, like at the end of every trip, it just seems like if it's two weeks or three months, it's always like, Oh, I lost some weight. I don't know how this happened. Yep. Uh, <laughs> The other side note is my wife is lactose intolerant. So normally here, you know, she gets pizza. She takes some of those lactate pills, eat the pizza, whatever else. I don't, I think, I don't remember if she just forgot or whatever it was at some point, like when we were in Italy uh, the last time and she found that she could just, oh, wait, but I don't, I don't have a, I forgot. I don't have a stomach ache. This is great. The rest of the time, just kind of tested it out. Never took one. I think it has something to do with, whatever hormones or something they're using on milk cows. 
I mean, the mozzarella there too is just like otherworldly. We were lucky enough. We have a friend who lives there and she took us to one of her friend's family's um, uh, mozzarella production facility. And yes, oh, we got to see the process from start to finish. And he did like this cool, not one like brand new, fresh, cut it off, give it to us right there. It was incredible. Oh, yeah. So uh, what are the different types like i know there's like burrata and like uh buffalo so, i guess or like or yeah, the, the, well no so uh, uh the buffalo mozzarella would be just the kind of milk or whatever that's used in it okay because yeah. isn't i thought one or the other like comes basically in a liquid and like yeah. the other one doesn't or something burrata yeah. is more liquidy yeah okay yeah, burrata is like because it's more butter like, so it's like spreadable and whatnot. And then the normal would be, but then there's like the buffalo mozzarella is just a different kind of milk. Obviously, okay. buffalo or yeah. So yeah. Uh, then there's uh, and I can't remember it now. Like smoked mozzarella is actually a normal cheese that we know. By it's like a different name, but anyway, smoked is also another kind too which is hmm. quite good. It's, uh, it's not, yeah, I can't think of it now. So anyway, smoked mozzarella is another big kind too. And what is interesting about it is they're really meticulous about the time because the longer it's, you know, it sits around, the less moisture it has. So like when you have fresh mozzarella, that's when you get like, you know, a uh, caprese salad, you just have it on its own. And when it's like yeah. a couple of days old, that's what they use for pizza. They don't use fresh on pizza because they would just make it too soggy and gross. Yeah. Yeah. I prefer a soggy pizza though. All the pizza in America is way too done. And oh, like, yeah. we like the soupy, you know, everywhere in Italy has the like personal size pizza and it's pretty like cooked for a couple of minutes and on like really high temperatures. So it's, you know, soupy and, and good. Napolitana style. Yes. Yeah. So you get the wood fired oven there. So the last time we were there, we were lucky to stay with an older couple uh, outside of Bologna. And and I mean, I've had pizza all over the place there, but like he was really into the Napolitana style pizza and had his own uh, pizza oven like in their backyard. And we did one night with them where they made us a bunch of different ones and, you know, working on your own dough. And, and yeah, you just, it's like 500 and something degrees. You put it in there. It cooks for like two or three minutes, spin it around a few times, just perfect, marvelous, like crispy on the outside with some soft gooey as you get into the middle. Yeah. Also my favorite kind. So, Yeah. Yeah. Really hard to find around here. Might just have to build my own pizza oven. Well, I recommend <laughs> A, that you build your own pizza oven. Uh, but also there's a place in DC called Two Amy's. Pretty good was my favorite in DC. There's a second place that's pretty good too that is in the Northeast. It's near one of the breweries there. I'm not sure if you've been into the town to hit up some of the breweries, but right proper. It's near right proper and it's called something. But if you, I'm sure you could do that. <laughs> anyway, if you're feeling, something. yeah, if you just look up, you know, Italian pizza in, in the Northeast, yeah. you'll find it. I'm sure we can find it. Anyway, we have so where's we talk- your uh, favorite place in Italy? It's a really delicate topic, especially since I have friends and 
perhaps they'll be listening. And now I can't share this episode if I actually answer that. Um, well, you know, you can go based on different criteria. You don't have to alienate yeah. anyone. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I like nice roads and infrastructure as part of it, but so I haven't spent a ton of time in the North. You know, I did a volunteer experience in Milan and I was there for a couple of weeks and I've been to Lake Como. Um, and then, you know, we came down into Tuscany and I've spent time in Florence and, and Bologna. And so some with my family, some pre family too. So, you know, I have various kinds of experience coming down into Rome and Naples and around Naples, which is like, so you have the Amalfi coast, which is, I have to say, so like, so there, there's a town, there's Amalfi, which is kind of the big one. There's another town I know that you've been to, Positano. And for a long time, Positano has actually been kind of like my, my go-to, like that place is pretty incredible. Doesn't have great infrastructure and you better have strong legs for those. Yeah, a lot of stairs. <laughs> yeah, a lot of stairs, but uh, but it's beautiful. And, you know, like I the first time I was ever there, I remember like uh, getting off this bus and like just walking up into a little cafe and just getting some bruschetta and just, you know, there you can see where they're like growing the tomatoes on the vines up in the hills and stuff. And it was just like, it was so basic. It was just like some bread and these chopped up tomatoes and basil. And it was like, oh just basic and delicious and perfect. And that kind of like described one of my ideal life experiences, but spending some time in and around Bologna, uh, this last trip uh, a couple of years ago, and it was like nice roads and good infrastructure. Um, the food was a little more hearty and I do enjoy like meats and heartiness, but I don't like cold that much. So it was like a good blend of things. The best gelato I've like ever had in my life was in Bologna for, and it's also the birthplace of tortellini and you get this like, you know, simple kind of, you know, these, these pasta and soup and it's like, that was great. Um, beautiful Tuscan hills. So we stayed most of the time like in, uh, out in uh, a little Monte San Pietro, like right outside of town. I also got to drive a Ferrari the first time through those uh, through those towns. So I don't know if that influenced it or not, but like, I don't know. I thought it was like a great blend of like everything that's great in Italy. Um, but some nice infrastructure and a little bit of different city environment. So I don't know. I'm kind of torn between those two, like, you know, fancy bologna, uh, which is what mortadella is. <laughs> that's, it's really good. I give it something. And, uh, you know, they're, I wouldn't say that they're in the same category. Like mortadella is, Totally different than, yeah. at least American bologna is, is way different than that. Right. Yeah. Well, I grew up on some American bologna and yeah, it's nothing to brag about. <laughs> yeah. There's maybe some real meat in there somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. There's something. There's something in there. Yeah. I, it's sort of out. It didn't kill me as a kid. Yeah. But I think I would agree that like, it's hard to, to pinpoint a favorite spot because, you know, being out kind of in the middle of nowhere is fun. And, you know, on one hand, but then also being like, like Rome was pretty nice because we had done a lot of like, you know, Positano and, and different places where we were like kind of ready for a little more infrastructure, like a little better internet, a little more like walkable, you know, that kind of stuff, a little more, you know, American ish, like, you know, still super Italian, but kind of the balance of some of both, I think is, is pretty key instead of just kind of doing one the whole time. 
Yeah, I mean, there's probably some things I'll say offline, but I'll just say this. In Rome, <laughs> we stepped over urine or feces way too many times. Both human. Well, I, I didn't have that experience, so um, <laughs> I must have been walking in the correct spots. Maybe a nicer neighborhood. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. On that note, <laughs> I, think that's I feel like that's a great finisher. Up. Yes. Yep. Um, so thanks everybody for listening. Please follow us if you enjoyed what you heard. Uh, next time we have Chris Garrett from the Ember Core team joining us. So if you have any questions for him about Ember, we'll be doing a lot of Ember talk next time. So uh, let us know what questions you have and we'll uh, talk to you then. Ciao.